Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Max Thomas, and we are going to continue our reading and reflection on Ezra and Nehemiah. I almost forgot what we were reading there for a second. Uh, but before we do, I just want to, again, uh, put a plug in for the Substack feed uh, that I began a little while ago. And uh, one of the more recent episodes I released uh, was a, uh, titled a Bonus Episode on uh, Reflection on Mary, the Mother of Jesus. I think Mary, the Mother of God, I think is um, what the, the title of it was. And make sure you go and listen to that. And I'm going to try and do a few more of those reflections uh, on this feed as well uh, for all my listeners so that you can uh, get a t- little taste of that. I've, I've really, really enjoyed um, doing some more theological and biblical reflection and putting some of that into writing. It's been a, uh, good to get back into that um, f- for myself, and it's been uh, just really fruitful, I think, in my own heart, in my own Bible reading, and and life in the Spirit and life with God, and so I'd love to share some of that with you. So you can subscribe either for free or there's a, a paid subscription as well to the Substack feed. It comes right to your inbox, um, uh, usually every week for paid subscribers. Every few weeks I put something out for uh, for everybody, and uh, so it's not super regular, not a huge commitment, and they're not terribly, terribly long reads, uh, but just something to get your wheels turning and um, let you know what I'm thinking about and working through. And uh, So you can go ahead and subscribe uh, at the link, using the link down below, and then go back and listen to the previous episode that I did um, uh, reflecting on Mary, the mother of God. And so with that, let's jump back into Ezra, Nehemiah, and we're going to try and plow through Nehemiah 2 through 7. So let's go. All right, so last time we ended, uh, we ended in the kind of the middle of chapter two in Nehemiah, and we had, we were introduced to Tobiah and Sanballat and how this story was being framed as kind of this cosmic good and evil, and we looked at some of the hyperlinks to the Adam and Eve story and how uh, that was being kind of played upon here. So now we're going to jump into um, the part of the story I think that most of us are familiar with, which is uh, the story of, of Nehemiah actually building the wall. Now, strangely, and I, I honestly don't have a great answer for this, and nobody really has a great answer for it, but if, we, if you read the narrative carefully, you'll start here in 2.11, which is the kind of the beginning of... Uh, the wall actually being rebuilt. And you'll get to the end of chapter four, and then all of a sudden you get this strange, um, this strange chapter five that has nothing to do with rebuilding the wall at all, and chronologically doesn't make any sense. And then you get through chapter five, and you get to chapter six and seven, and they're back rebuilding the wall. And so, chapter five. For some reason, and and theologians and commentators have different theories as to why or who and when, chapter 5 seems to be inserted or rearranged 
at a later date, that originally when this was written, um, chapter 5 was somewhere else. A lot of people think that chapter 5 actually belonged at the end of the whole book, and so after what is now chapter 13. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have too strong of an opinion on any of the, the theories that I've read. They seem to be all just kind of that theories. But it is pretty clear to me as well um, that chapter 5 was moved to where it is for some other theological or literary purpose. And that even, to be honest, I struggle still even now to see exactly what that what that is. I mean, it, it's a great part of the story about Nehemiah taking care of people and widows and things like that being fed. Um, but how that even flows, it just it, it, it doesn't make sense in the flow of the story. And so what was in a pers- the, the editor's mind when that got moved you know, I'll be honest, I still don't still don't have quite figured out. So we're going to actually, when we're going through this, I'm going to go, we're going to start here at 2, chapter 11, and we'll go through 4, then we're just going to skip 5, and we're going to 6 and 7. And I'll make some some remarks on chapter 5 later, uh, and when we get to the very, very end. Um, but we're largely just going to, to skip that, just for simplicity's sake, honestly, because it is, it is, kind of takes out of the flow of the actual narrative of, of the book. So uh, so the rebuilding story begins here in 2.11 with Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem quietly without really much fanfare at all on purpose, actually. And he stays there for three days. Um, uh, this notion, actually mentioned in a previous episode, uh, but now we're here actually at the part of the story, Um this notion of staying there for three days is, I think, clearly an echo to Joshua coming into the promised land and camping out before moving into the land. And you can read about that in Joshua 3, the first two or three verses. And so Nehemiah, he he goes out by the cover of night to inspect the walls, which he had been told by his friend back in, in chapter 1 were burnt down and broken. He does this kind of loop all around the city. He doesn't actually quite get all the way around. He goes from one side all the way kind of clear to the other, and then he he comes back. And later, what, what, what's interesting, and I, th- I think this may be a purposeful, is when Nehemiah is going to dedicate the temple, uh, he's going to have two companies of, uh, of people, of trumpets and uh, musicians and singers, they're going to go up on those walls, and they're going to go around, and some of those same gates are are mentioned. And so I think he's kind of foreshadowing the that right now they're burnt and they're destroyed and they're in heaps and rubble, but later they're going to kind of take that similar path, but instead of going around the city, they're actually going to go on top of the walls because they're finished. And so uh, after seeing the walls, Nehemiah he, he finally approaches the, the leaders of Israel and he calls them to help him rebuild the walls with the aid of the hand of God, which is said to be upon them. And again, that, that phrase um, we've said numerous times now was spoken of, of Zerubbabel, it was spoken of some of the other leaders, it was spoken of Ezra, and now it's spoken of uh, Nehemiah. It was also spoken of Cyrus, that the hand of the Lord was on him and that his spirit was stirred as well. And same, I believe, with uh, excuse me, one of the other emperors, I think it was Artaxerxes, if I'm remembering correctly now off the top of my head. 
Um, but they um, so they all rise up together and they begin to work on the walls. But pretty quickly, it seems, uh, that Sanballat and Tobiah, we remember they're playing kind of the serpent role if we're using the Garden of Eden narrative in the background here, which I think we are meant to do, but they, they catch wind of it. Uh, and they quickly begin their work of of opposition. And with every encounter um, in the story, the opposition intensifies. So first here, it's just the displeasure of, of these two guys, uh, along with another person, Geshem, the, the Arab. Uh, but now here in this part of the story, it's now increased to deriding and despising and what seems to be more actively actually trying to stop this thing from from happening. So their first accusation against Nehemiah uh, was that he is rebelling against the king. Now, we as readers uh, know that the the opposite is true, right? We know that he's not in rebellion to the king uh, at all. And so chapter 3 contains a list of all those under the, the leadership of uh, the high priest Eliashib, who helped rebuild the wall. So this is um, this is another. It's not really genealogy, but we we looked earlier and talked about the importance of lists in Ezra Nehemiah, and this is another one of those lists. And and again, we can't. We should be careful just to skip over them because they are telling the story on a grand level. I I've said a few times. What they are trying to do is connect these people of Israel with the past people of Israel and with the the prophetic package of hope that we're calling it in the prophets and the Psalms and the the Torah of of what God has promised to Israel. And so these are the the author is trying to, to say that these are the people, right? This is the time. This is the day. This is the people in which and through which God is moving and acting to bring all these things to bed. And it's on a, on a big picture level, with broad strokes, I think that's what the author is trying to do. Now, um, a quick note here, just for the sake of the observation. Uh, this chapter, chapter 3, is clearly authored by someone else, and not by Nehemiah. Okay, for one... Nehemiah's memoir is written in the first person, while this chapter is written in the third person. Right? You just make that observation. Um, reason number two, if, if you go through in verses 3, 6, 13, 14, and 15, there's this repeated note that the builders had set up the doors and bars and bolts. And this is in direct like odds with what we'll read later in 6.1, where Nehemiah <clears throat> tells us that the doors had not yet been hung. So again, this is just a simple observation of how we have the book today is not how the book was originally written. It has been edited and rearranged and spliced together and again, I, I think for some people that maybe makes them nervous. Uh, it should not. It, it should not threaten our faith in the authenticity or the reliability or the authority of the scriptures uh, at all. So just throwing that, that out there. But anyway, 
So this list clearly is depicted as an answer to Nehemiah's um, both kind of his prayer, but really his call uh, to rise up and and build in chapter two. So in chapter two eighteen, he says, "Let's let's rise up together and build." And then we get this list in chapter three of all the people that answer that call to rise up and build, and, and actually came to do it. Chapter four. Um, opens with another clear escalation of opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah. So they're despising and derision, which was the language used uh, the last time, has now increased to full-blown anger, rage, and ridiculing. And for the first time, the author actually records the enemy's taunts, like what they were uh, officially or, or actually saying or accusing them. And the the taunt here is that uh, the the wall would easily be knocked over, that even even a fox would knock over the wall, right? That, uh, that image or taunt of a fox, uh, there's actually a, a prophecy in Ezekiel 13 where Ezekiel prophesies against the false prophets, and he says that they were like little foxes who tried to rebuild the breach of Jerusalem's walls. So he's he's calling them, he's he's using the, the fox language to speak of the false prophets uh, and also their relationship to the rebuilding of the wall. Remember, Jesus even calls Herod that, that fox, that, that sly fox. And so that similar taunt, excuse me, is is even being used here. And and again later, uh, at the very, not the end, but the climactic scene here of, of this section is going to be, you know, the, the dedication ceremony. And the taunt of, hey, even if a fox runs on this wall, it's going to fall over. Something as little and small as a fox. They now put two huge companies of people on top of the wall and obviously they they stand right so this it's the the story is their the opposition is taunting them of, of their terrible work and how this is going to fail and they not only overcome it in a little way they overcome it in a big way that's where the story is is going to take us so in response to the taunting is a pretty uh pretty brutal prayer <laughs> if, if we're honest the the psalms are filled with these as well they're called imprecatory prayers where the person is praying for uh some form of god's judgment upon uh his enemies so here in this prayer nehemiah prays that their enemies would be plundered and taken captive to another land essentially that their fates would be reversed Right, that it would go into exile just like the people of Israel did. And Nehemiah's reasoning here is that they've angered God, but that's what he says. The text never says that, actually. Uh, now, let's pause here and reflect a moment on on these prayers. And how should we handle these prayers? We talked last episode a little bit about the nature of prayer. And these prayers are difficult because they are in the text, 
right? We have this text about uh, you know, the enemies being destroyed. We have Psalms talking about uh, that the their enemies should be dashed against a stone, that their babies and their their wives would be taken away or killed or slaughtered or, I mean, horrific things that we would never dare now in our own mind, that we would never dare actually pray or wish upon anyone. None of us would wish any of those things upon our own enemies. So what do we do with them? Should we pray them? Should we not pray them? How are they, are they authoritative in the same way? As some of these other verses, are they okay for us to pray? Does God actually do those things? If someone is praying those in Scripture, does that mean that God does, you know, actually does those things? And this is where I think it's crucial that we we begin with asking the question: Well, to whom are we praying, and to what nature is? And what nature does that God have to whom we are praying? We'll put it that way. Right, that we are praying to the God who is like Jesus, has always been like Jesus. There's never a time that he has not been like Jesus. Right, Jesus is the word of God. He is, as C.S. Lewis says, what the Father has to say to us. That when the Father speaks, he speaks of his Son. And when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he speaks with Moses, the Torah, and Elisha, the prophets, they speak together about his, his exodus. It's literally what it says, his departure, his soon departure, but it's literally his exodus. That the law and the prophets, this is what they speak about. This is what the prayers speak about. This is what the Psalms speak about. Because this is who God is and this is what he is like. He is like the crucified man dying on a tree, forgiving his enemies. And so how do we handle the, if that's what God is like? If God is like Jesus forgiving his enemies on the cross, then how do we pray these prayers where it seems the person, the psalmist, Nehemiah here, is trying to hold these people in their sin and asking God to judge it. And I think there's a few ways to think about it. One is to say, I don't think God is scared of our big emotions, of our anger, of our frustration, of our pain and our sorrow, and that there are times in which those things bring real things out of us. I think that's also important to say that just because something is in the Scripture does not make it right. There are all kinds of things in the Scriptures that none of us think is right or true in the sense, it's true in the sense that it's trying to teach us something, but it's not true in the sense that it is real. Not everything is vain. Slavery is not okay. You cannot have multiple wives. We don't believe that God calls us to sacrifice our child anymore like he did to Abraham. So there's all of these things that we now, for different reasons, and people will give different reasons, but we all come to these this conclusion that there are certain things in the scriptures, that they are true in the sense that they are trying to teach us something about God and ourselves in the world, but they are not true in the sense that they are actually are the way things are. And I think these imprecatory psalms uh, 
and prayers like this one in Nehemiah are the same, that they give us a mirror at least to a few things. One is it gives us a mirror into the desperation of the brokenness of humanity, that when push comes to shove against a wall, things come out of us that are very deep, and sometimes those things are ugly, and sometimes those things are wrong. And part of the job of the scriptures is, yes, to reflect God back to us, to show us what God is like, but it's also to show us what we are like, to say, left to yourselves, you will wish this upon your enemies, and that's not okay. And so part of the Psalms, part of the the tradition of the Psalms is actually to show us that this is what is in humanity, that we will even seek to weaponize God to seek revenge upon those who have wronged us. And Jesus steps in and says, you should not do that. You should love them and bless them and care for them and turn the other cheek and give them the tunic that they ask for and go the second mile and you should do all of these things and not seek revenge and you should put away your sword and you should not go after them. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus because this is the way of God. And so these psalms, these prayers are mirrors both to the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our own hearts, the the necessity that we have to God, but they also then in that way, they give us a contrast to think about the what God is actually like and how God treats his enemies and how God treats those who have wronged him. And some will say, well, yeah, okay, well, that's great. God forgives, but doesn't he hold people accountable for their sin? Doesn't he judge them? And to that, I would say, well, yes, of course he does in all kinds of ways, but it's not by dashing babies against stones or driving people into exile away from their family. I mean, obviously right now in the news, as you're listening to this, there's all kinds of humanitarian crises going on where people are fleeing from their families. We dare not say that that is somehow the hand of God in an answer to someone's prayer that, you know, these people are our enemies and you should drive them out of their home. No, 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 no. That's not what, who God is. That's not what God is like. Not at all. Not for a moment. Not for a moment. Does he hold sin accountable? Yes, because the wages of sin is death. And so every time that we choose the way of sin, we bear the consequences of that sin. And yet God still loves us, and yet God still forgives us, and yet God still comes and saves us from our own sin and from ourselves. Okay, we need to move on from that. But you know these imprecatory prayers they they're uh they're hard sometimes they 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 really are so uh, let, let's jump back into into the 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 text here and we're almost at kind of the coming up here on the 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 key part of this entire section and so uh although their opponents uh Sanballat and Tobiah they tried their best um to resist the building of the wall, uh, the report reaches the the report reaches them, the enemies of Israel, and they come in anger and complete frustration and rage, 
it says to try and and they, this is the the joining together phrase that they get the report that the walls have been joined together uh, and so they join together and they literally show up to try and fight and halt the work in in anger and there is a phrase here their strategy is that they came to cause confusion and if you remember where else do we have a story about people building something and then confusion coming? Well, the story of Babel. And obviously, these stories are different, but that's, <clears throat> but that's exactly the point. Is that here, there were people building up their own names and God coming and confusing them. And here's people trying to build for the name of God, and the enemy comes up to try and confuses them, to try and confuse them. In one, God is the one who brings confusion and scatters the people. In this story, what we'll find is God protects them and scatters their their enemies. To a point, to a point. Obviously, we know at the end of the story, things actually don't work out. But here in the narrative, they they actually do complete the wall, right? They actually finish the task and they dedicate it. So in that sense, they, they are successful. They, God scatters uh, their enemies away from them. So there may be an echo here to even the, the story of, of Babel. Um, verse 10 in, in chapter 4 stands out in this section of the narrative because it seems to contradict the testimony of verse 1 and verse 6 that the workers were by the power of God, rebuilding the wall successfully. Now, in verse 10 here, seemingly out of nowhere, the workers are said to be discouraged and unable to build the wall, right? Um, The reason for this sudden discouragement is obviously the increased intensity of the opposition coming, right? So the description of the enemy coming to fight, excuse me, against Nehemiah and the workers is played out through the rest of, of this entire chapter. And Again, Nehemiah's first response is to pray for protection, and um, and we saw him beginning the his story in chapter one in prayer, and his second action is to we looked at this already a little bit too is to arm the people with swords and spears and bows to fight with one hand and to work with the other. Now the rest of Nehemiah four, if you have if you're able to look through the notes on page. 48, you'll see that there's, um, there's a, a, a clear pattern in the rest of the chapter of things that are said to be problems and how they are um, resolved. So I'll give you just one example. Uh, in verse 1 and 7, it says that the enemies, Sanblat and Tobiah, they heard of the rebuilding, and then they came to, uh, they came to oppose it. And then, if you read in in verses fifteen and twenty, it says, "When our enemies heard," so they're repeating the phrase of verse one and seven. When they heard this, that God frustrated their plans, and then again in verse twenty, where you hear the sound of the trumpet, God will fight for us. Right. So there's this. The enemies heard, and they came, and now God is acting. He's hearing, 
and he's acting and he's fighting and he's protecting and now the enemies are hearing that and they are they are fleeing they're they're running we said we saw earlier made the observation about how sanballat was angry and enraged uh, that anger is is resolved in in uh, verse 5 where it says that they provoked god to anger and now he's going to he's going to act um in verse 10 it says the the strength of the burden bearers uh, at, at the work that, that was failing. Uh, and then in verse 17, those who carried burdens uh, were, uh, actually, let me let me just read that here. Uh, verse 17, those who were carrying burdens were laden in such a way that each of them labored with one hand and worked with the other, right? So we have, they were failing in their burden bearing and now they're, they are succeeding. And so there's a number of those so systematically we're going through. And again, this is part of, of I think, good Bible study is looking for repeated words, repeated phrases and ideas. And the point here, that, that may seem like, okay, well, who cares? So they're, you know, they're burdened and failing and then they're burdened and succeeding. The point is we want to see how the author is moving the story along. And right now, the story is continuing to move along. They are overcoming opposition. And again, I've already spoiled it numerous times, but we're going to get to the end of the story and see that they actually fail. But that only holds weight if we see all of these victories that come that come before it. And so we have to make these little connections first so that when we get to the climax of the story, or here, the anti-climax of the story, it, it actually makes sense. Okay, let's skip ahead here to Nehemiah 6 and 7 and make just a few brief observations um, about these two chapters because they, they kind of conclude uh, the story here. So in here in six and seven, we get um, Sanballat and Tobiah's final attempt to thwart the rebuilding of, of the walls of Jerusalem, and they they employ three different themes. Um, first, they accuse Nehemiah of rebelling against the Persian king, and then they hire a false prophet. All kinds of places you could go there. Um, where people in the past hired false prophets against the children of Israel and connections you could make there. Um, and then thirdly, in verses in, in verses uh, 17 and 19, uh, Nehemiah summarizes a, a seemingly ongoing scheme of his enemies in which they sent letters uh, to Tobiah and it, he continued to reply. And the, the contents of the letters obviously aren't divulged except that their purpose was to bring fear to Nehemiah. So they seem to be sending Nehemiah continued threats. But despite all of this, uh, their work is completed in 52 days. So Nehemiah's story here, we're told, begins the 20th year. And when he comes, by the time he gets there and actually starts the work, right? So we don't know exactly how much we know he came and then he waited three days exactly how long it took for him to start the work. But when they started the work in 2.11, uh, it took them 52 days to 
to do it. And this is again framed as an answer God working in an answer to Nehemiah's prayer. Um, so with the recording of the completion of the wall, the, the first major section, uh, the first major section uh, comes to a close. And that began all the way back Ezra 1, 1, right? And again, this section contained three movements in it of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, Ezra the law, and Nehemiah now the walls. And after the walls are completed, um, that same brethren, uh, Hanani, remember he's the one who came and gave Nehemiah the news when he was in the court of the Persian king. Uh, he's now set over the city, right? Uh, and uh, he discovers, uh, amazingly, the genealogy of Zerubbabel recorded in Ezra 2. And so we get uh, actually a, a repetition of that same genealogy here in Nehemiah 7. And so Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2, those matching genealogies kind of form brackets around this whole section. And that's how literarily how we how we see this as, as a section. So that's, that's the story of Nehemiah uh, completing the wall. And uh, hopefully some of those observations were helpful for you. So when we come to the next episode, I think we have three episodes left if everything goes according to plan. We'll do uh, each of the next two sections in an episode, and then we'll do one final episode making some final observations. So uh, thank you so much. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, make sure you do that and uh, watch out for the next one as we continue to work through Ezra Nehemiah. We'll see you next time.